Welcome to a bonus episode of Holy Human, where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I am Serena, and Katie is not here, and we need to talk about polygamy. (laughs) But not only that, we need to talk about how we talk about polygamy. If we only talk about the negative aspects of 19th century Mormon polygamy while talking about both negative and positive aspects of Mormon monogamy, then we are not taking an equitable approach to polygamy as a relationship style or structure. And when the history of polygamy is also shaped by disability, and when neurodivergent and queer people are highly represented in modern-day non-monogamy, the way we talk about polygamy matters. Those of us in the progressive Mormon sphere are trying to build a bridge from Mormon history and doctrine to those of us who have historically been excluded and even expelled from Mormonism. If this bridge purports to lead towards inclusion of neurodivergent, disabled, and queer people, then should it not consider our viewpoints when reimagining and analyzing our collective Mormon history? How can you talk about polygamy, literally marriage to more than one person, without centering love? How can you talk about polygamy, a, quote, deviant relationship style, without centering the people whom modern Mormonism considers deviant, meaning queer people in particular, and neurodivergent people as well, though that's not as often talked about? If we believe that love is love and that we are here and we are queer, our true principles when it comes to BYU students protesting homophobic policies at the church administrative building in downtown Salt Lake City, then those principles are also true when people engage in non-monogamous relationships. As a child, my biggest fear was not the monster under the bed. It was finding my true love exultantly becoming sealed to him for time and all eternity in an LDS temple and then dying tragically young, only to watch helpless from the other side as he remarried and lived out his life with someone else. I engaged in this nightmare thought experiment willingly, almost to test myself. How would I react? Would I follow him and his new wife everywhere, just one dimension off, screaming and begging for him to hear me? How long would it take for my screams to dissolve into sobs, which would then dissolve into whimpers until finally my spirit collapsed on the metaphysical ground without even a body to feel my pain? Funnily enough, in my mortal body, I have engaged in these screaming matches. My mom called them tantrums. Now that I know I'm autistic, I wonder how many of these tantrums were from being overstimulated and how many were from simple fear of abandonment, a hallmark trait of borderline personality disorder, which I also have. If autism is genetic and BPD is trauma-based, wondering whether or not specific tantrums were a result of environmental overstimulation or acute emotional pain from an anxious, fearful attachment style raises interesting questions about my childhood. What was the defining trauma that gave me BPD? Was it the intimidation and emotional and racial abuse in my teens from my then-stepfather? Was it seeing my mother walk away from five-year-old little Serena, a bouquet in her hands, walking towards him? I was supposed to give her the bouquet. I was the flower girl. Instead, someone else gave it to her, and I picked flies out of the tool of my mini wedding dress during photos, my calves likely aching from the tantrum I'd had earlier. I had a habit during tantrums of flexing my feet and ankles while fisting my toes while kicking. That made my calves sore for days. But no, I wasn't autistic. It must just be the Filipino genes making my feet more flexible, let's say, closer to the earth. Yeah, that's sarcasm. 
But if that was more than just environmental overstimulation at five years old, maybe the trauma goes back earlier. Maybe it goes as far back and is as simple as my parents divorcing when I was less than two years old. Imagine that, something that I don't even remember, feel largely ambivalent to, and seems completely normal to me, being the catalyst for perhaps a lifelong personality disorder. I no longer kick wildly and clench my toes when I'm upset. Years of negative reactions from others untrained me of that, or as my autistic friends might point out, I learned how to mask my natural stimming when overstimulated, which is not necessarily a good thing. Fate, however, made sure my wild emotions would not remain unnoticed. (laughs) No matter how much I mask, in fact, if I mask my natural neurodivergent traits too much, my legs collapse. This is cataplexy, a loss of muscle tone when experiencing strong emotions. Cataplexy is the hallmark symptom of narcolepsy type 1, a sleep disorder, sure, but so much more. Cataplexy happens because of a neurochemical deficiency that allows a certain neurotransmitter to be released during the daytime that, in non-cataplectic individuals, is only released during REM sleep to help control the body during dreams, so you don't kick yourself in the face while running away from zombies. I, as a person, can only run away from zombies or run after unfaithful (laughs) husbands in my dreams because, in real life, the endorphins from running almost always trigger my cataplexy. But wait, Serena, why are you telling us all this? I thought this episode was supposed to be about Doctrine and Covenants 132, about polygamy. I don't see the relevance. Luckily, dear reader slash listener slash consumer of my words, I am autistic and will explain the connections and patterns I see in as clear of a manner as I can. My first point is that everything is connected. As someone who is cataplectic, I cannot separate my emotions from my body. I am a walking metaphor, a living punchline to, are you falling for me? (laughs) When I go on dates. And because I'm neurodivergent in multiple ways, at least with autism, borderline personality disorder, and with ADHD and OCD traits, I cannot separate my mind from my emotions. And I cannot separate theory and theology and religion and philosophical principles from my mind because that's where I process them. Do you see where I'm going with this? Theology, philosophy, and theory and religion reaches me through my mind and because of my neurodivergence becomes amplified by my amplified emotions, which in turn triggers my body to collapse if the trigger is strong or consistent enough, which honestly is not that hard to achieve. My point is theology becomes real in my body. What is metaphysical, metaphorical, undefined, abstract to other humans becomes something I can literally feel. Generally speaking, cataplexy does not include pain. It is painless. But the emotions that trigger the cataplectic attack, those I can feel viscerally. Feel the shame or anger melt my leg muscles. Something as simple as a TikTok disagreement the other day triggered my cataplexy so bad that I had to cancel all my plans for the day and lay in bed, including canceling a pole dance class I was looking forward to. I say this not to bemoan the fact that I'm cataplectic. Far from it, I think it's a beautiful phenomenon and is intrinsically tied to my identity, but to state the daily realities. This is why, when I feel strongly about something, I prefer to either get it out right away or avoid it indefinitely. This is why I want to say what I have to say about polygamy, come follow me in Doctrine and Covenants 132, because this is not a theory to me. This is not an abstract concept. This is not something that my foremothers did a century and a half ago that I can just forget, that I can intellectualize, that I can cast in black and white light with little color or shades of gray. 
no, this affects my everyday life, my existence as a neurodivergent queer disabled woman, because I am also polyamorous slash non-monogamous. Now, because I was a journalism major once upon a time, technically an emphasis in the communication major in general, but still, I believe in disclosure. It irks me to no end when people, whether journalists, writers, podcasters, claim objectivity but have a clear bias. Bias is not a bad thing. It is unavoidable. We all have biases because we are all humans. Electric slabs of meat constantly experiencing the world through our own perspectives. Because I believe bias is not inherently negative and is unavoidable, I believe in admitting our biases so we and others who might not pick up on it easily can see how we have reached where we are. Our biases do not excuse our opinions, they inform them. And the beauty of that is we can always alter or change them depending on exposure to new information. But my autistic brain that was rigorously taught which phrases reveal bias inherently in her journalism program simply cannot abide it when I see it in other writings or media. Inaccuracy makes my head hurt, my body tense. (laughs) Anyway, if you weren't sure I was autistic yet, that should have done it for you because I just rambled about bias and accuracy. Point is, my disclosures. I have biases and that does not make me more or less wrong than you. It just means that I have a perspective that perhaps you may have not considered. So, full disclosure, I grew up in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I volunteered to serve a proselytizing mission to Russia, but was medically released, cataplexy, soon after. I fervently believed in the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, insomuch that I tried going to Russia on my own for my own research and proselytizing if the church wouldn't give me the medical clearance to go officially. But I was emotionally unwell, experiencing lots of mental illness symptoms. And in the midst of all of that, I got quote unquote married to a guy at my school who was a member of the church that I had met. (laughs) Drum roll, please. Only eight weeks prior. I just counted it. (laughs) Married is in quotes because I got an annulment 11 months later. I drafted the legal papers myself. And in legal speaking, that means the marriage was legally invalidated. The court shows that the marriage was never sanctioned by law and therefore I was never married, which I think is good for my tax returns. Disclosure-wise, that experience and the romantic experience directly following it, which lasted for years and is still ongoing, though it has morphed and changed many times, uprooted my perspectives on love and commitment. Some might seem cynical or angry or a Grinch about love and marriage. At least I don't cringe at engagement photos anymore for the most part. And lastly, disclosure-wise, I run Holy Human, a Come Follow Me podcast, as someone who does not go to church or even believe in uh, most Mormon doctrines. So there you go. I am a multilingual, mixed-race, neurodivergent, mentally ill, disabled, non-monogamous, demisexual, aerospec, bi, post-Mormon woman with a burgeoning tattoo and piercing collection, and my scriptures are still on the shelf above my bed. These are all important parts of my identity, and I hope you can see how that shapes my perspective in a way that may be informative to you rather than invalidating my viewpoint right off the bat. And I do not think polygamy was bad. Hashtag no nuance November. That was a joke. I'll be serious. I don't think it was all bad. I don't think it was all good either, but there is a tendency even perhaps especially in post or ex or progressive Mormon spaces to continue to apply a binary mode of thinking to the things that we feel have harmed us. As former Mormons, that includes the church. When we encounter a faith crisis, we go through an identity crisis. And when something attacks our identity that deeply, we go into survival mode. 
I understand this intimately because that is exactly what my BPD brain does when threatened, except in BPD we have a word for it. It's called splitting. When I have a BPD split, most nuance disappears. I may cognitively think or believe that someone has positive traits about them or simply that they are a complex human being that cannot be summed up by mere adjectives. But if I split on them, all of a sudden I feel intense rage to the point of possible hatred. Emotionally, they have become bad to me, with a capital B. It isn't until I'm able to get space and time from the situation that the color returns and they are not bad, capital B, anymore. They are just human. So, yes, I understand the urge to make generalizations and moral judgments when feeling threatened or hurt. We're in survival mode, and the only way out of it is through it. I get it. But as someone who splits frequently, I can tell you affirmatively That on the other side of it, people and situations are never as bad or as good or as simple as they seem in the thick of moral judgment. It may feel that way. Hell, it might even need to feel that way so that you can stay alive or learn something important about yourself or make sense of another aspect of your life. But it is not capital T truth. And if I've learned anything from being an editor on BYU-Idaho's newspaper in the Religious Freedom section, it is that the more of a punch an adjective or qualifier has, the more likely it is to be biased and not contain the whole capital T truth. In the spirit of the not-whole truth and nothing but the not-whole truth, here is what I want people to know about Mormon polygamy. Polygamy in and of itself was not manipulative. Because polygamy as a relationship style in and of itself is not abusive because abuse knows no bounds. Abuse can be perpetuated in all sorts of relationships, regardless of orientation, structure, neurotype, etc. Many people suffered under Mormon polygamy, but then again, many people still suffer under Mormon monogamy, like I did. And yet many people enjoy full, loving lives in monogamy, as did many polygamous Mormons. The one does not cancel out the other. And I should say, as do many polygamous Mormons, since the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not the entirety of Mormonism, and there are Mormon-identifying people out there still who do practice polygamy still in the sense of one man and multiple wives. Perhaps the pain of our ancestors deserves not to be forgotten. I understand that. Perhaps it needs to be exhumed. But is it for them? Or is it for us to heal generational and personal attachment wounds that we have yet to acknowledge or heal? If we're going to exhume the past, let's not focus on just the pain because, and I know this as a screenwriter who carefully constructs characters the audience will actually give a fuck about, humans are more than our pain. We are also our joys, our mundanities, our musings. This was my guiding principle and also my main challenge when writing a television pilot about two college sisters who accidentally time travel to 1869 Utah and enter non-monogamous relationships on their journey back to 2019. How do I show their joy and the joy of all of these people in polygamy back then without invalidating the pain? How do I write the pain without stealing from the joy? How do I show the world that I gave my heart to this church? And that is both tragic and perfectly fine. It is when I was researching this screenplay that I read The Polygamous Wives Writing Club from the Diaries of Mormon Pioneer Women, which was a collection of diaries and commentary collected by Paula Kelly Harline. 
This book was disturbing to me, not because of the pain that these women went through, though sometimes it was traumatic, but because I read it in the middle of my own faith crisis at a time when I wanted to believe that the church was all bad and that happiness, if it existed, lay far, far away from church and monogamy. But many of these women carved out joy in the midst of what would have been a living version of my childhood nightmare. And that was at first flabbergasting and then revelatory. I was moved, fascinated, and motivated to remember them in whatever way I could. But section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants is more than just about Mormons who have been dead for decades and almost centuries. It is real and it is relevant, especially to neurodivergent queer Mormons like myself. To disavow polygamy as a relational structure and one's rush to affirm one's own pain over someone else's joy is, as Blair Osler said in Queer Mormon Theology, quote, simply replacing one oppressive mandate with another. It's another case of the oppressed becoming the oppressor, end quote. To cast an entire system of love and relationships as manipulative or abusive is to alienate and stigmatize those of us who by either choice or orientation identify with and engage in those systems of love and relationships. It is by error of logic or error of emotion to wrongfully associate us with manipulation and abuse, two things which most people would say makes a person bad. And I put both manipulation and bad in quotes because I simultaneously believe we all manipulate to an extent regardless of mental illness or neurotype, and that there is no such thing as a bad person, only people whom I intensely dislike who also happen to be human. But anyway, Mormons do not have a monopoly on religious truth. Ex-Mormons do not have a monopoly on trauma. Straightness does not have a monopoly on love, sex, or connection. And monogamy does not have a monopoly on healthy, life-giving relationships. So I am going to try to explain how this was in 19th century Mormonism to the best of my abilities. The first thing that I want to note is that polygamy, or in a broader sense, consensual non-monogamy, can be healthy, exultant, and joyful for all parties involved. Like any other relationship style, it does not guarantee these things, and in its own unique way, can bring about different sorrows or traumas to the surface, but that does not discount the relationship style as a valid choice for many people. In Polysecure Attachment Trauma and Consensual Non-Monogamy by Jessica Fern, a psychotherapist, public speaker, and trauma and relationship expert, Fern lays out the different reasons why people enter into non-monogamy. Fern basically says it includes greater need fulfillment, greater expression of themselves, interest in personal growth and development it brings, wanting to give and receive love to multiple partners, sexual diversity, philosophical views, and a more authentic expression of who a person is. If the word authentic expression stood out to you, don't worry. I noticed it too. This is where queerness and neurodivergence all come into play, but I will get back to that later. Fern notes that her experience with non-monogamous clients shows that having a strong sense of why they are non-monogamous prepares them for success in non-monogamy. She says, quote, when the waters of consensual non-monogamy begin to pick up and the emotional rapids of opening up your relationship begin, having your why to remember and return to can serve as the needed life jacket that keeps you and your relationship afloat. This is Serena again. A huge why for many 19th century polygamous Mormon women was their belief in the religious commandment of the new and everlasting covenant or plural marriage as set forth in Doctrine and Covenants 132. Section 132 is not a perfect scripture 
by any means, if there is such a thing, I find many parts of it to be heinously discriminatory towards women, threatening destruction and casting women in the role of a transgressor if we do not accept the law of plural marriage. I don't believe anyone should be forced to enter into a relationship that they don't want to be in whether by threat of violence, eternal damnation, or lack of options. And I believe this because I was in that sort of relationship in my quote-unquote marriage. Doctrine and Covenants 132 verse 64 reads, If any man have a wife who holds the keys of this power, and he teaches unto her the law of my priesthood as pertaining to these things, then shall she believe and administer unto him, or she shall be destroyed, saith the Lord your God, for I will destroy her. For I will magnify my name upon all those who receive and abide in my law. End quote. As irritating as this section and this verse is, the fact of the matter is that many polygamous Mormon women were not motivated to enter polygamy because of the threat of eternal destruction. Yes, the words are intense. But as Harline notes in the Polygamous Wives Writing Club, although early on Orson Pratt and Brigham Young believed that all people would eventually embrace polygamy, in reality, many average Mormons didn't embrace it. She continues, quote, It is hard to know how seriously ordinary Mormon settlers took their advice, their leader's advice to consider polygamous marriage. According to Carmen Hardy, quote, within a quote, we clearly need a better understanding of the dynamics at work between the broad membership of the church and their leaders end the quote within the quote. Because Mormon people naturally felt an aversion to polygamy, their leader's speeches had to sound especially assuring and promising, end quote, and I will add also like threatening destruction. And thus followed a series of justifications. To be honest, to me, it sounded like Brigham Young and church leaders tried just about every tactic under the sun to motivate people to be polygamous. The result was polygamy permeating 19th century Mormon culture in so much that Mormon participation in polygamous marriage averaged between 25 and 30 percent if men, women, and children in polygamous families are counted, according to Harline. This is much less than what one would expect from the threat of eternal damnation for not entering into polygamy, which, in my opinion, shows that the average Mormon didn't enter into polygamy because they were scared of eternal retribution, but for a variety of other reasons, many of which echoing the whys that Fern lays out in regards to modern consensual non-monogamous relationships. Now, before I get into this, here's another caveat. I am not a historian. I have not done what some people would consider, quote, extensive research on 19th century Mormonism. I am merely a non-monogamous autistic person who happened to grow up Mormon, who is good at research and writing in other contexts because I'm a screenwriter and a <coughs> private investigator <coughs> and who applies these skills to her autistic special interests and hyperfixations. That being said, I know how to differentiate good sources from poor or incomplete ones, and it is my belief that Harline's study of 29 diaries from 29 different Mormon women, although not exhaustive, is groundbreaking in the fact that it is the first study done that I know of using primary sources from ordinary pioneer women. These women were not married to prolific church leaders. These women did not become prolific with any sort of authority in the church in and of themselves, although many of them found success and joy in less public ways. And that is why I rely heavily on this source when discussing 19th century Mormon polygamy and extrapolating insights from it for modern day times. Because the fact of the matter is that most modern Mormon women will not marry a future prophet or member of the 70, let alone become prolific Mormon women's organization leaders. 
ordinary insights from ordinary people to our ordinary lives. That is what I consider most relevant and therefore relevatory. So will there be exceptions and variety to what I am saying here? Of fucking course. But that does not mean polygamy as a system is bad. So here we go. The first and perhaps what should be the most obvious reason for women to join polygamous marriages in 19th century Mormondom is because of love. As Blair Osler said in Queer Mormon Theology, heaven isn't heaven without all the people we love. And if not, heaven becomes hell. Jane Hindley left the Isle of Man in 1855 to, quote, gather with the saints and joined a wagon train going west to Utah. She was 28 years old and struck up a friendship with the captain of the wagon train, Captain Hindley, who was 35 years old and already had a family, read wife, children, in Utah. The following year, after living with a different family, the Kane family in Utah, John Hindley proposed to Jane. Brother Kane, whose family had taken in Jane, was against the union and wanted Jane to stay with him. But as Jane wrote in her journal, I loved John Henley and made up my mind, if necessary, to go through poverty and privation for him. I had admired his conduct on the plains and trusted my future life and happiness to him, end quote. Later in life, Jane reflected that although it was a big step to take, she never regretted it and that God sustained her through her trials. One of my favorite examples in this book by Harline is Ruth Rogers, who arrived in Utah with her parents and siblings in 1852 after converting to Mormonism. She left her family in a wagon near the Provo River in November to strike out on her own, seeking employment. She found work in a sawmill in Jordan Mills and was getting breakfast there one day when two men came in and, quote, it came into my mind that they knew Samuel, end quote, an old family friend from 10 years ago who was four years older than her but was close with her father. Harline says, quote, Ruth wrote that she was impressed that he would care for his brother's widow, and the men commented that Samuel was slow in getting a wife of his own, which perhaps gave her an opening. She put her name on a letter Samuel sent to her father years before and had the men deliver it to him to see if it would be enough to catch his interest. I thought if Samuel wished to learn more about me, that was sufficient. He wrote back, and long story short, they dated, and she turned down Mr. Gardner, her employer, and a man who could have given her greater financial stability, and instead married Samuel Rogers because she loved him. From personal experience, I know that love, or at least what I can tell is love from my feeble attempts at identifying and exploring it, does not and cannot remain within bounds that society has set. From a neurological and spiritual standpoint, it is entirely possible to love more than one person at a time, sometimes in similar ways and sometimes in very different ways. Why should my love be worth any less than another person's simply because the person I love might already be in a relationship? If that person loves me too, or at least cares about me and wants to be with me to some extent, who is to say that we cannot share and explore that bond? Although written from the perspective of the wives, it seems that the husbands love these women too, even if they weren't their first loves. Blair Osler put it beautifully when they state, In the expanse of eternity, I suspect we will fall in love more than once. Who knows how many times and in what ways a god falls in love? Even I, Serena, a cynical post-Mormon who largely considers herself aromantic, or at least in current practices aromantic, felt something when I read Osler's description of the eternities and the possibility of surrounding it or enduring it without the people that I love. I know that I have felt love. I know it as surely as I am skeptical about Mormon doctrine. 
I knew it because intense love, like so many other emotions, triggers my cataplexy. Yay! (laughs) The people that I love the most have the biggest effect on me in so much that I can and have become paralyzed by it because of the unique interplay of my disability and this ephemeral emotion or set of emotions that we call love. I concur with Blair when she says that despite not having knowledge of eternity, only faith, they would do almost anything to be with their husband. Blair says, I would bind myself to him in whatever insignificantly human way I possibly could. I would put a ring on my finger. I would construct temples, seal him to me, and pray that this meager gesture of our love was worthy of God's consideration. I would love him in every possible way so that one day a god might be moved by our love enough to rummage through the archives of quantum archaeology and breathe life into our love. This feeling is expansive. It is illuminating. It is revelatory. It is energizing. Why should only certain people be allowed to experience it and explore it? One of the very foundational values of consensual non-monogamy, as stated by Fern, is that love is not a finite resource. This is entirely in line with the Mormon doctrine of eternal progression and that matter cannot be created or destroyed. Love is energy, and although it can become depleted, it can also be multiplied and renewed over and over again. Some of these pioneer Mormon women married for love, entered into queer slash deviant relationships with the men that they loved, at least from our perspective, and that is not a sin. And it is not something that any of us humans who have ever experienced any sort of love have the right to cast stones at. The next reason why Mormon women entered polygamy in the 20th century that correlates with Jessica Fern's wise of non-monogamy is need fulfillment. This sounds simple, but it can include a wide range of needs and motivations. All humans have needs, but because of our different backgrounds, genetics, personalities, we all have different needs. It is not reasonable to expect one person to fulfill all of our needs, as that is impossible and is associated with codependency, but to have one urgent need that is a deal breaker, trumps the others, that guys are decisions, sure. One of my needs in a relationship is to have stimulating conversations about my special interests. I do not settle for relationships or even friendships that don't meet this need. It is my personal boundary for keeping myself happy and managing my time and energy. Even another autistic person might not fulfill this need for me enough for us to strike up a long-term friendship if they have vastly different interests than I do. I like what I like, and they may like what they like, and that's okay. But when I find someone who does share my interests. It is glorious. It is relaxing. It is natural for us to share the things that we love. It's like drinking water. An unfortunate fact of 19th century society is that, at least in the Americas, is that women had much fewer rights, opportunities, and choices. This means that if a woman did not have the privilege of being in a close association with a man, her choices were extremely limited. Whether that choice be as lofty as companionship as love or as practical as making money for food. As a disabled person, I intimately know what it is like to have to work within a society that doesn't give you many choices. I have very few choices when it comes to providing for myself. I have a bachelor's degree in communication, a minor in Russian, a master of fine arts and creative writing and screenwriting, yet I am consistently self-employed. Read mostly unemployed, (laughs) living in literal poverty on the grace of one of my parents. 
Is it ableist that I cannot work a full-time job because of the demands on my narcoleptic, cataplectic body and neurodivergent brain? Hell yes. What that means is that with my limited options, I take the help I can get. And please note that I'm not endorsing relying on abusive relationships to provide for help, but that is a huge issue in disabled communities when someone is disabled and also being abused but cannot leave because of the constraints of their disability. I am reliant on a man, my father, and I'm grateful that he's allowed me to hook up my RV to his house's electricity. I would much rather rely on him than live in even more extreme poverty. This is kind of how I see the need fulfillment of many 19th century Mormon women who had fewer options for careers and work and putting food on the table than the average non-disabled woman does today. It is not necessarily manipulation to acknowledge that you have a need. Someone else can fill that need, and they will do so in exchange for you fulfilling one of their needs. That's quid pro quo. It's symbiotic. That's something that happens all the time. Sex workers know this, and often that is one of the industries that is most accessible for disabled people to work in. The issue is when one of the parties is not informed that what they need to provide is more than or different than what they originally agreed to. That is when boundaries have been crossed and when we are at risk of experiencing trauma or abuse. Harline writes, both Jane and Ruth seemed attracted to the men they married, while Martha seemed attracted to her husband's community status. But after marriage, neither Martha nor Ruth could count on their husbands to be breadwinners. Martha and Ruth not only supported themselves most of their married lives, but also sometimes supported their husbands' other families. End quote. Martha wanted status, and a polygamous marriage gave that to her. Mary Jane, whose mother filed for divorce from a man who wanted her to leave Utah for California, remarried as a polygamous wife to a earnest, hard-working man. When reflecting on joining her new polygamous family as a daughter, Mary Jane, 16 years old, wrote, quote, It seemed very pleasant to have someone care for us. Harline denotes, especially during early settlement years, polygamy became a way for women who were alone to become part of a family, although this did not always mean that they were well cared for. This did not always mean that they were well cared for because polygamy was a new concept, for these people, frontier life was hard, and the fact remains that abuse is possible in every family configuration. Harline further notes that in Manti, two-thirds of all plural marriages included a wife who was widowed, divorced, or fatherless. Women are human. Humans have needs. In a system with limited resources to meet those needs, marriage, even a polygamous one, might have been attractive to many people. Does that mean that every marriage or union was unhappy? No, as I hope to show you. Mary Jane herself wrote that she was happy to be part of a family, and as many children in mixed marriages nowadays will tell you, we are often the first to know if our new step-parent is a shithead or is abusive in any way. Interestingly enough, Harline also cites research from Catherine Danes, which shows that contrary to what the popular story is of polygamous women not having any options, they often had options to marry monogamously, but rather chose polygamy instead. Danes writes, quote, women entering plural marriage generally wed more quickly than those marrying monogamously, showing the inadequacy of the idea that plural wives were women left over after most other women had married. You can't be left over if you're still getting proposals and getting them enough that you can turn down the ones that are less favorable. But as Harline notes, this rhetoric of the needy widow permeated Mormon culture and was often used to, quote, justify polygamy. 
my, as Serena, only contention with that is that there is no shame in having needs and knowing how to fill those needs. There shouldn't be any moral judgment in something as simple as that. For Mormonism in general, however, I do take a slightly different stance. In the end, one of the reasons that polygamy was emphasized and propagated so widely and so emphatically by church leaders was the fact that it was used to solidify the Mormons' grip on the land in the midst of Mormons stealing land and committing genocide against the native indigenous population of Utah. Brigham Young himself, when giving out land parcels, prioritized families with multiple wives by allowing family heads to draw a lot for each of their wives. As Harline notes, interestingly, widows and divorced women who were heads of families also participated in the drawings, while unmarried men could not draw at all. (laughs) In the context of frontier life that was at odds with Native Americans, this particular need fulfillment of Mormonism in general takes on a more sinister tone. I do not wish to excuse the fact that my ancestors stole land and participated in violence against indigenous populations to do so. That is a crime that Mormonism as a whole still has yet to acknowledge, let alone atone for. It is something I want to explore and acknowledge in my screenplay. It deserves a lot more time and attention than we're currently giving it in Mormonism, and more than I can give at the moment when we're talking about specific relational structures. Now, on an individual level, some Mormon pioneer women entered polygamy because they honestly felt it would allow them a fuller expression of themselves, something that many queer and neurodivergent people in relationships yearn for, but it is not limited to only us. A different Martha, for example, changed her mind about marrying a man named Joseph Haywood after he proposed marriage and a mission together. She wrote in her journal, Today, I had a conversation with Brother Haywood who hinted at the probability of me wanting to go with him to the South Sea Islands, which is a new train of thought to me of a very agreeable nature. This field of labor is one that I would delight to act in, that of a missionary and a wife. The former I believe I have a natural talent for, and privation would be nothing in the discharge of it. End quote. Before converting to Mormonism, Martha had been an enthusiastic Advent missionary in Canada. Although I now am skeptical about the practicalities and implications of missionary work from a neo-colonialist perspective, I understand exactly what Martha felt, as perhaps misguided that is. That moment of inspiration when you find someone who wants to do the very thing that propels you, that you've already devoted your life to considerably, that still uplifts you and excites you for the future. I imagine in this moment that Martha felt seen by Joseph Haywood, not physically, perhaps, but on an emotional and spiritual level because he recognized the parts of her that were most precious to her, the talents, desires, and ambitions that she had to give up to an extent when she joined Mormonism and moved to Utah. Becoming one of his wives, then, was more than just fulfilling a practical need, more than just a matter of love, more than just ticking a box to receive a level of salvation in the next life. No, it was to be with someone who encouraged her to express herself more fully and bloom where she wanted to bloom. Tragically, in my opinion, Joseph Haywood's first wife, Sarepta, intervened, not only speaking to Martha and begging her not to go, but also by complaining to Brigham Young, who agreed that Martha should stay in Salt Lake after the marriage and that Sarepta's brother should go on the mission with Joseph Haywood instead. 
Martha was devastated and wrote, The faint probability of going south opened a twofold gleam of sunlight to lighten my dreary prospect. Still, Martha continued with the marriage and was sealed by Brigham Young himself in the Haywood house to Joseph Haywood. This is where I take issue with not polygamy itself as a construct or choice that people engage in, but the way it was administered in this patriarchal society. Not only did Martha close off her options for a dream that wasn't realized, but a first wife's personal opinion and wishes trumped her own. Prioritizing one partner over another is even outlined in Doctrine and Covenants 132, where it mentions requiring the existing wife to give her consent for the man to marry again. It's even mentioned when we talk about Sarah and Abraham and Hagar. This is something that we need to talk about. I believe in consent, don't get me wrong, but there is a difference between consent in one's own personal boundaries and projecting one's own boundaries or wishes on someone else without their consent. Do I think that Joseph should have gone on a mission in general without consulting his wife? Because it would affect her if he did that and she didn't have income from him for a long time. Not necessarily. Marriages are partnerships, after all, and important things should be discussed. But for Sarepta to intervene with Martha's happiness was not her place. And yet it is taken for granted in a monogamous culture or (laughs) in this polygamous culture that still had monogamy clinging to it that the wife or at least the first wife should have preference or veto power over what her husband a completely separate human being can and cannot do with another person regarding first wives harline says of their journal entries quote their superior tone and flippant references to their husband's additional wives betray an underlying assumption that As first wives, they were their husband's real wives, and that first wives must have had an inkling that it seemed strange for a new wife to arrive and assume that she could take what was not hers to take, for she had not helped to earn or build it. To be honest, this angers me immensely as someone who does care about people who are in current partnerships. Men are not property any more than women are property. We are all human beings with our own desires and wills. Men are not projects to be worked on and let out occasionally to reap the benefits of one's hard work. I have men that I care about and I don't want them to be treated with such callousness and disregard for their humanity simply because their primary or first partner is insecure about her relationship with him. I could write a whole novel, perhaps I will, about how insecurity and attachment styles contribute to this phenomenon in Mormon culture, but for now I will simply say that this sort of behavior is an egregious overstep and is a huge issue in modern day consensual non-monogamy as well. Without getting too deep into consensual non-monogamy terms, hierarchical polyamory is a type of CNM wherein the people in a primary relationship set the rules for all others, quote, which can include restrictions on certain recreational or social activities, limits on certain sex acts, or on how strong, deep, or invested other relationships can become. Many polyamory experts caution against hierarchical relationship structures that create asymmetrical balances of power in which people in secondary or tertiary positions have little or no say about how their relationship unfolds or are subject to vetoes or rules from their metamors. This is from Fern again. So I would ask you, is your fight against patriarchy and hierarchy deep and wide enough to recognize when you yourself are supporting systems that place other people 
including women, in positions where they have little say or choice. And men as well in this, because <laughs> he didn't get a choice in it either, Joseph Haywood. Because that, again, is, as Blair Osler says, replacing one oppressive mandate with another. Blair also states, and I agree, that any future policy regarding ceilings and marriages needs to consider the individual agency of all those involved, where desires are respected, whether people are monogamous, polygamous, straight, or queer. Personally, I still see hints of sort of this mononormativity in Osler's book itself when they refer to being with the person I love most, which some non-monogamous people would take issue with, because how can you pick one person to love more than another? What if you love all of them? How can you say that one type of love is truer than another? Who are you to put limits on feelings or fate? To be honest, the first wives seemed to be the ones who took the most issue with living polygamy, which is why I consider it more a problem with attachment than an issue with the type of relationship itself. Harline writes, if first wives writing had a formula, it would be, I believed that the principle of plural marriage was from God, but it was still hard. It nearly killed me. Fern would counter that if we're going to point a finger at a cause of distress, it is not non-monogamy itself, but rather the paradigm shift that people try to navigate without a map to guide them through to the other side. First wives laments in their journals about the pain they feel having to share their husband does not mean that they were necessarily abused and does not mean that they were an abuser in and of themselves. Although that kind of crossing boundaries is indicative of a type of abuse. Instead, I argue that this quote shows that the why for many of the first wives was another one of the whys mentioned by Fern. And it was a strong one. It was strong enough to sustain these wives in their polygamous marriages, despite undergoing massive personal and philosophical upheaval. It is not these women's fault that they were born into a society that told them one thing about marriage and love in so much that they believed it, but then yanked the philosophical rug out from under their feet by telling them, actually, this is what marriage and love looks like. Although I personally am non-monogamous now, I feel for these women. I have been in that place. I have felt the pain of watching someone I love and devoted my entire being to whom I thought we would be together, just the two of us forever, fall in love with someone, multiple people <laughs> else. It nearly destroyed me, and I resorted to what some might call unhealthy coping mechanisms simply to keep my desire to live alive. Lydia Ann, after her husband married Vina, wrote, Many nights my pillow would be wet with grief. I was only human. Though I knew that principal plural marriage had been revealed to the prophet Joseph Smith, and that it was true and sacred, it was almost more than I could endure. It came nearly taking my life. Harline continues, In this statement, she encapsulates the internal conflict, the human complexity, and the religious sacrifice required of her. She did her best to be well-behaved, yet inside it was killing her. This is what Fern calls primal panic, something much, much deeper than jealousy. Cognitively, Fern says, they know that their partner is still alive, not abandoning them or doing anything wrong, but their body and emotions are in primal panic. In such cases, jealousy is not sufficient or an accurate description of what is happening for the partner in distress. Fern cautions that mislabeling primal panic as jealousy can make someone think that there's something wrong with them, that they need to be better, that they need to do better at living non-monogamy, 
and that ultimately it can lead to self-destructive behaviors like distractions or substances. Now, primal panic does not always occur in consensual non-monogamy and is more likely to occur when someone already has unaddressed and secure attachment, but the fact remains that consensual non-monogamy can motivate one's nervous system into the space where nothing feels safe or real. It is pure terror. Fern recommends seeking professional help as soon as possible when this happens for the safety of all involved and so the partner in distress can start to heal. Considering how few and far between modern professionals in non-monogamy are and how skewed attachment and trauma therapy are to mononormativity, it really is a miracle that these first wives in 19th century Mormon polygamies stayed alive long enough to beget our ancestors despite some of them feeling this primal panic. I attribute this to this immense, complicated, beautiful, perhaps manipulative why of the new and everlasting covenant, the principle of eternal marriage. These women believed it, and it kept them alive on their worst days. Third wife Martha Cox did not love her husband as, quote, lovers love, instead loved his wives in the spirit of their home. She even encountered discrimination from local Mormon friends when she chose to marry her husband. Her friends said, it is all very well for those girls who cannot very well get good young men for husbands to take married men, but the friend felt that there were young men that Martha could have gotten. In defense, Martha wrote in her journal, the fact was that I had asked the Lord to lead me in the right way for my best good and the way to fit me for a place in his kingdom. He had told me how to go and I must follow in the path he dictated, and that's all there was to it. One might speculate whether Martha was queer in some sense because she was content to enter a marriage to a man that she did not love, and yet she wrote how she loved his wives. Martha Cox's story is a beautiful example of how the concept of consensual non-monogamy can bring together queerness with a purported spiritual principle. Regardless of whether Martha was sexually attracted to the other wives, she loved them. Osler writes that the purpose of the sealing isn't to legitimize sexual behavior. The purpose of sealings is to legitimize, reinforce, and cultivate the eternal and everlasting bonds which people share with one another, be they homosexual or otherwise. I think it is wonderful and holy that Martha chose a polygamous marriage and found love there, even if it wasn't traditional, heteronormative, monoromantic love. Love is love, and while writing her autobiography late in life, Martha saved her sweetest words for her sister wives. She imagined a blissful eternity as one in which she would be reunited with the two best women in the world. And that's from Harline. How can you look at Martha's relationship and say that she was manipulated, that she was abused? Certainly, she had struggles, mostly to do with the logistics of living on a frontier, but she chose that life over a monogamous relationship with a man. This is why it is so important to not generalize and say that polygamous women were manipulated or coerced or abused. To do so is to miss out on the glorious love that people like Martha found and to invalidate the kinds of love that modern-day queer and neurodivergent people experience, which cannot fit into traditional boxes. Which leads me to my last point about the why of polygamy, which is that even back in the 19th century, some Mormon women entered it because it was a more authentic expression of who they were. 
One of what I consider the most moving and personal reasons that Fern cites for consensual non-monogamy and the one that I personally identify with. Although, to my knowledge, there are no official studies of the link between polyamory and neurodivergence, a brief foray into polyam and CNM spaces on social media shows a huge overlap. Prominent digital creator Leanne Yao, they, she, who runs Polyphilia blog on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter, shared an anonymous musing from someone else on Twitter, wondering more and more if there's a link between polyamory and neurodivergence, because every single person I know who doesn't understand monogamy is neurodivergent. In the caption, Yao wrote, I once did a poll on Twitter and about 70% and more of my polyamorous following was neurodivergent. There's definitely a link. From my personal experience, although not all of my partners and friends, and partners is a pretty loose term, (laughs) although not all of them are non-monogamous in practice or identity, most of them are neurodivergent in some way. One could argue that like-minded people simply find each other, but the fact of the matter is that some people's brains and who they are as people are simply more open to non-monogamy either because they just want to be with multiple people or because they already struggle to understand and or fulfill traditional societal roles or rules because of their brain structure. It reminds me of autogender, A-U-T-I-G-E-N-D-E-R, which is used by some autistic people, though not myself, as not a gender in and of itself, but, quote, rather having a gender that is so heavily influenced by autism that one's gender and autism cannot be unlinked. And that is a quote from Lyric Holman's on NeurodivergentRebel.com. Another similar phenomenon is neuroqueer, a term coined by Dr. Nick Walker, she, her, in a grad school class in 2008, but eventually spreading. Originally coined as a verb, Walker notes in an essay on her website that it has also become an adjective and a noun. As a verb, however, quote, neuroqueering as the practice of queering, meaning subverting, defying, disrupting, liberating oneself from neuronormativity and heteronormativity simultaneously. It was an extension of the way queer is used as a verb in queer theory. I was expanding the queer theory conceptualization of queering to encompass the queering of neurocognitive norms as well as gender norms. And in the process, I was examining how socially imposed neuronormativity and socially imposed heteronormativity were entwined with one another and how the queering of either of those two forms of normativity entwined with and blended into the queering of the other one, end quote. Although I personally have not used the term autogender, I do see a massive link in both myself and others between neurodivergence and queerness in the LGBTQ plus community. To be honest, I have yet to meet a queer person in real life who's actually like neurotypical to an identifiable extent. <laughs> A lot of us are autistic, many of us have ADHD, and a significant number of us, including some of my best friends and me, also have personality disorders, some of which argue uh, are neurodivergent. Some people argue that those are neurodivergent, despite the efforts of the American Psychological Association to pathologize them. But I have yet to meet a normal queer person. I know they must exist, probably, to be honest, they are the real unicorn on dating sites, except a unicorn I never want to catch, which is an inside joke with other non-monogamous people. But 
<laughs> anyway, many LGBTQ people find solace and community in the queer community before they ever learn that they might be neurodivergent. It provides a safe space for authentic expression, much more at least than heteronormative spaces, and that is something that neurodivergent people of all neurotypes long for, considering how much we have to mask ourselves in heteronormative neurotypical spaces. Now, some people, even undiagnosed neurodivergents, are content with solely interacting in queer spaces, but I personally find them lacking. Too often, queer spaces, whether online or in person, are inaccessible to me physically or other disabled people because despite the acceptance of deviance from a societal norm, there's little discussion or absorption of neurodivergence, and therefore they're not discussing ableism. You cannot solve race issues with just feminism. You cannot solve disability and neurodiversity issues with only queer theory. Intersectionality is needed at all levels, and oftentimes the very lack of mention in neurodivergent terms in queer spaces is enough to annoy me. But then again, like I mentioned earlier, inaccuracy is a huge autistic pet peeve of mine. But there's also still enough unexamined internalized ableism in queer spaces in regards to the language that they do use that I cannot feel fully comfortable there. This is one of my only criticisms, one of them with Blair Osler's Queer Mormon Theology, is that Blair defines queerness and uses it in places where I would use neurodivergent. Essentially, though, are they so different? There is danger in pathologizing queerness, as we know from history, but ultimately, both queerness and neurodivergence concerns deviating from societal norms because of who you are intrinsically as a human, what you desire, and how you present yourself to the world, or at least how you want to. Going back to my point, if gender and desire, whether romantic, sexual, platonic, or somewhere in between, can be so highly connected, correlated with neurodivergence, and if gender and desire are the guiding and driving forces for people who enter into all sorts of relationships, then it makes sense that those of us who are both neurodivergent and queer enter into non-monogamous relational structures at higher rates than neurotypical people. And this is part of our history as Mormons. <laughs> us Mormons were known in the wider USA for being rigid, racist, homophobic, transphobic. We, as Osler said, quote, didn't simply have queer beliefs about marriage and sexuality. We lived those beliefs. Polygamy was such a queer form of sexuality that it provoked retaliation not just from angry mobs, but also from the U.S. government, which threatened to seize our assets. The fact that we have now turned from it, that we as Mormons now conveniently forget to mention Joseph Smith's other wives, let alone our own polygamous ancestors, is devastating, not just for their sake, but for our own. Harline even notes that, quote, although modern Mormons take pride in the hard work and determination of their 19th century pioneers, they generally find polygamy based on Old Testament practices, confusing and controversial and have yet to come to peace with the powerful mythical legacy left by some of their foremothers, end quote. I cannot count the number of times that my mother has told me to buckle up and stop complaining because my pioneer ancestors went through so much worse. There is a cultural pride in the trials and hardships pioneers went through because it showed how strong they were. I would say that it's like a strange pride, except that it isn't strange, or at least it isn't unexpected to me. The fact that 
our mothers and Sunday school teachers, etc., play up the physical toil that our pioneer ancestors overcame while conveniently leaving out and devaluing the queerness of our ancestors' relationships is emblematic of ableism, not just in a physical sense, but in a neurodivergent queer sense. Although Fern doesn't state autism outright, she does mention highly sensitive people, (laughs) which is what I call Walmart autism branding, and how we might, as highly sensitive people, incur an insecure attachment style because of overstimulation. Considering the fact that consensual non-monogamy is inherently insecure, as Ferns says, it makes sense that so many of us autistic would be drawn to it. This is not to say that we cannot have secure relationships in consensual non-monogamy as neurodivergent people, because secure relationships happen in consensual non-monogamy all the time. It just means that at least for me, non-monogamy resonates in a way that is difficult to explain in words. I have a high need for variety, for the unexpected, for the surprising, even for a challenge. These are all things that I did not have in my marriage, and I felt suffocated. I felt like a shriveled version of myself, among other emotions. So I resonate with what Fern calls a non-monogamous orientation, though this is controversial in some queer discourse, when she says, quote, many people come into their non-monogamy orientation a bit later often after having suffered from the belief that they are broken or defective in some way after struggling to be faithful to their partners or feeling that monogamy was never fully right for them. End quote. Broken. Defective. Evil. Doomed. Possessed by Satan. These are all phrases that disabled and neurodivergent people hear about ourselves every damn day that we go online. They are phrases lobbed at us by family, friends, church leaders, etc., who are unsatisfied with our performance, disgusted or angry at us for crossing invisible or illogical societal rules, or for asking more from them than they want to give us, for asking for the simple right to accommodations, or sometimes even deliberately, They use these words to hurt us in vindication for not giving them the admiration, attention, or love they think they deserve for us calling them out on the way they are hurting us. I personally heard these words from my ex-husband's mouth when I fell in love with someone else. I heard these words from another partner years later when I committed too soon to him and I tried to say goodbye to an old flame and yeah, that turned into more. (laughs) I heard these words from my own family when I had a pregnancy scare, and I admitted that I wasn't entirely sure who the father was. I am not broken. I am not defective. I am not evil or doomed or possessed. I am a neurodivergent, mentally ill, disabled, non-monogamous, demisexual, aerospec, by post-Mormon woman with a raging attitude and a large collection of onesie pajamas. I take courage, inspiration, and even empathy, which I have in low and fluctuating levels because of my neurodivergency, so I'll take it where I can get it, in my polygamous ancestors. I revel in 19th century Mormon polygamy, not because it was perfect, because, again, no relationship structure in and of itself, is perfect, but because, to me, it is an expression of hope that to God, 
Perhaps I am not deviant. Perhaps I am simply wholly human. 